Welcome. This is Dr. Michio Kaku, Professor of Theoretical Physics at the City College and the Graduate Center of the City University of New York, and this is Exploration. Every week on Exploration, we discuss the fascinating world of science, and today, leading off, we're going to summarize some of the top stories of the past week. The lead story today, again, concerns the heartbreaking drama unfolding in the Ukraine. It looks as if we're now entering phase two of the invasion of the Ukraine with no end in sight. So the tragedy, the heartbreaking tragedy will continue as we now enter the next phase in that bloody war. And then use on the Alzheimer's front. There's a new study which generated a lot of interest on the stock market, but those stocks crashed. There was a New York Times article stating that maybe just maybe this Alzheimer's drug was oversold, and maybe it's not as effective as many people believe. And in all honesty, I should say that one of the professors involved with this perhaps faulty study was in fact a professor at my university, the City University of New York. And then we'll say a few things about the Fountain of Youth. Before on exploration, we talked about a new study showing that it's possible to, in some sense, rejuvenate. Rejuvenate aging cells, skin cells that are over 50 years old, and have them revert back to a 30-year-old status. However, I think the media has run away with this. The media didn't present the downside of this therapy. But we'll also talk about regeneration. It's possible that regeneration theory can give you the fountain of youth. And then we'll talk say a few things about cancer. You know, biopsies are no fun. They're potentially painful. They take time. You have to wait for the results to come back. But now there are two methods to streamline the process of biopsies. First of all, at the Stevens Institute of Technology in New Jersey, they came up with a portable device, a small portable device that allows you to detect skin cancer with 97% accuracy. And it's painless, it's quick, within seconds you get a diagnosis. And then we'll say a few things about liquid biopsies. Liquid biopsies can detect up to 50 different kinds of cancers simply by an ordinary blood test. And then we'll say a few things about the movies. Yes, the leading theme now in all the major science fiction movies is the multiverse. And so we'll say a few things about what science does and does not say about parallel worlds. Well, let's just jump into some of the top stories of the past week. As you mentioned before, we're now in the middle of phase two in the war on the Ukraine, and it's heartbreaking. Heartbreaking when you see pictures of civilian populations in hospitals and nursery centers being being basically blown apart with no regards to human life. But let's say a few things about military strategy. When I was in the United States Infantry, we had to take courses in the theory of warfare. And the thing that was drilled into you is the, the rule number one of warfare, and that is know your enemy. And during phase one of the war in the Ukraine, when the Russians tried to take Kiev, they made a huge mistake. They were overconfident. They thought they knew the enemy. They thought it would be a pushover. 
they thought that the Russian army would be met with flowers and all sorts of celebrations as liberators. Boy, was that a huge mistake. Know your enemy. That's rule number one. So the Russians became overconfident. They thought that the thing would just last maybe a few days, three days, a week at the maximum. They'd be welcomed as liberators. But boy, were they mistaken. First of all, the chain of command was disrupted. Scores of generals were killed by the Ukrainian forces. And logistics, the tanks were stuck in the mud. They could not, uh, be, they could not maneuver and fire. And the soldiers, the Ukrainian soldiers, had anti-tank weapons, lots of them, by which they could make mincemeat out of the invading tank armada that came from Russia. So for a number of reasons, phase one was a complete disaster. They were not able to take Kiev. They had thousands of casualties. Their military had a very weak chain of command. Many of the troops did not know they were going to go into a firefight. They thought it was just an exercise, a military exercise. That's what they were prepared for. Boy, were they wrong. Well, now we're in the middle of phase two, where things are going to get a lot bloodier because the logistics are now favoring the Russians. First of all, the terrain is not so muddy in the eastern and southern sectors of the Ukraine. Their tanks are not necessarily going to get bogged down and become mincemeat for anti-tank weapons. It's going to be artillery shell versus artillery shell. It's going to be a conventional warfare in the east. But apparently, the Russians are making similar mistakes in phase two as they invade the east and the western part of the Ukraine. They thought it would be a pushover once again because of the fact that there's a large Russian-speaking population in the eastern and southern part. They thought that, that would be the core of a new government, and so they could take over and consolidate the eastern and southern part of the Ukraine and basically cut the Ukraine in half. That apparently was plan number two. Plan B. Well, that turned out to be wrong, too, because, yes, there is a large Russian-speaking population, but they don't want to be fired upon. They don't want to have shells go into their hospitals and nursery centers. And once the true colors of the invading Russian army was made clear, even the Russian-speaking group in the eastern part of the Ukraine began to turn against the Russians. And so, once again... Know your enemy. Understand who they are. Understand why they fight. And that means that, once again, the Russians made a mistake. Now, how it's going to turn out, I don't know. But many military analysts say that it could be bloody, protracted, a war of attrition, with both sides armed to the teeth, and, of course, civilians caught in the middle. So, in other words, we could be watching the beginning of a new phase in a protracted, bloody war. Well, news on the medical front. Alzheimer's disease, people think, could be the disease of the century. About 6 million Americans, get this, 6 million Americans suffer from different stages of Alzheimer's disease. And you figure that for each person with Alzheimer's, they in turn affect maybe two to three other people. And so then you begin to realize that 
Tens of millions of Americans are affected by Alzheimer's disease, and it's only going to get worse as the population ages even more. So a wonder drug, a wonder drug would be tremendous if one could be developed. Well, Cassava Sciences, based in Austin, Texas, made an announcement that they're coming out with a new anti-Alzheimer's disease drug. All of a sudden, the stock market roared to life. Stocks rose 1,500% on that news, a huge jump. However, now people are saying that it could crash. Why? Poor, sloppy sciences. And this even affects my university. One of the lead doctors in this development, Dr. Hyoyan Yang, is a professor at the City University of New York, where I also work. And yet now, the New York Times quoted many leading scientists saying that the whole thing could be a charade. In other words, poor results, sloppy analysis, jumping to conclusions, and worse, no placebo effect being compensated. So in other words, this whole house of cards could come tumbling down with regards to this new Alzheimer's therapy drug that is being touted on Wall Street. Well, we'll have to wait and see. We'll have to wait and see whether other organizations and hospitals and researchers can duplicate some of the results. But already, there's a chorus of scientists at senior institutes saying that when they looked at the paper, they were shocked at the sloppy analysis, poor results, jumping to conclusion, short duration of the experiments, and lack of a placebo group. However, there's also some good news on the Alzheimer's front. One of the mysteries of Alzheimer's disease is that you can have a person who's apparently perfectly normal, but when they die and you do an autopsy, you find that their brain is covered with amyloid protein gum, which should cause a tremendous amount of neurological disorientation and Alzheimer's disease. But there they were, in perfect health before they died. So there's not a one-to-one correlation between amyloid protein that gums up the brain and Alzheimer's disease. So here's a result that is now generating lots of excitement, and we mentioned it before on exploration, and that's the prion theory. Usually textbooks say that disease, diseases are caused by, by, um, by viruses and by bacteria. But there's a third agent that also is self-replicating, and that's called prions. When proteins misfold and they touch other proteins, they cause the other protein mo- molecules to misfold as well. And so the protein molecule cannot do its work because it's folded up incorrectly, and it spreads. So this theory won the Nobel Prize when it was first revealed that we now know of a third way, a third way in which diseases can spread. Now we realize that Alzheimer's disease is probably prionic. This is new. And analyzing the amyloid protein gum, the tau and beta form of the amyloid protein that gums up the brain, we realize that there's at least two two types of prions. One type of prion is folded differently. Now, let me explain. A protein molecule is a long chain. There are 20 amino acids, 
And so it's a long chain of different kinds of 20 amino acids arranged in different ways. That's why there's so many different kinds of proteins. However, when they fold, they can fold clockwise or counterclockwise or any number of ways because it's like a ribbon. Ribbons can also fold up right-handed or left-handed. And that's why we have at least two varieties of the amyloid protein. And scientists found out that one of them, the right-handed version, is apparently responsible for Alzheimer's disease. This is big news because it could solve the mystery of why is it that some people apparently are normal and yet their brain is all gummed up when you do an autopsy. Maybe it's because the left-handed amyloid protein was prevalent in these individuals and the left-handed variety does not cause the enormous neurological damage associated with Alzheimer's disease. Well, it turns out that every 48 hours or so, the brain flushes a lot of the amyloid protein out. And if scientists can find a way to flush out one version of the amyloid protein, the right-handed version, then perhaps there's a way for the body to cleanse itself from this gummed-up material that clogs up the brain and causes so much neurological damage. And now scientists are realizing that not just Alzheimer's, but maybe ALS, which afflicted uh, the great cosmologist Stephen Hawking, and maybe Parkinson's disease, maybe they too are caused by prions. This could be big news, because usually you read that these diseases are incurable, and no one really knows how they form. Three diseases that could be prionic, Parkinson's disease, Alzheimer's disease, and ALS, or Lou Gehrig's disease. This could be big news, because once we know the target, then it's possible to devise perhaps drugs, therapies, and medicines to counteract that. Because before, we didn't know what the target was. Was the target the amyloid protein? Was it a germ? Was it a virus? Was it a bacteria? Look at all the amazing candidates that we were looking at. Now we realize that the answer is none of the above. None of the above are actually the causation factor for Alzheimer's disease and Parkinson's and ALS, perhaps. Perhaps is prionic. So in other words, a lot of the medical textbooks are going to have to be rewritten. And of course, that's how science is done. Science is done on things that are testable, falsifiable, and reproducible. Just because one day something seems to work, it doesn't mean it'll work all the time. Perhaps it was a fluke. That's why it has to be tested independently by other groups. So this new theory, the theory that Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, and ALS are caused by prionic diseases, that is now creating a whole new avenue of research especially in diseases that afflict the elderly and diseases for which there is no cure at all. Well, let me say another thing about the medical front. Recently, a story that we profiled on exploration has made big news, and this is the fountain of youth. Is it possible to take skin cells and have it revert back 30 years into the past? Well, the media went crazy over this story, However, when I talked about the story, I talked about the downside of this story as well, because everything, of course, has two sides to the story. So let me explain. 
The Nobel Prize was given to Yamanaka, a professor in Japan, for showing that you can take cells and have them revert back to an embryonic state. That's amazing. So embryonic stem cells, which can become any cell of the body when they mature, we thought was a one-way trip. Once you take an embryonic stem cell and it becomes a mature cell, that's it. But now it's possible to revert that to an embryonic state. Now, when you think about it, it's inevitable that this is true because of the fact that when humans reproduce, our cells turn into the cells of a baby. They revert. This is called regeneration. So adult cells of the man and the woman create a embryo, which is embryonic, and has and it's, it's young again. It has rejuvenated itself. And so this rejuvenation factor was isolated by Professor Yamanaka. Four Yamanaka factors are involved. And what you do is you take cells and you expose them for about 50 days to these four Yamanaka factors. And sure enough, you can get cells that are mature and have them revert, revert back to embryonic state. Well, here's the new twist on all of this. Instead of bathing these chemicals for, for 50 days, why not do it for 13 days? Well, okay, that sounds logical. So when they reverted these cells, not back to 50 days, back to embryonic form, but back to 13 days, they found much to their shock that they were in fact able to rejuvenate these skin cells by 30 years. Well, this made big headlines. Is this the fountain of youth? Well, the media, of course, always likes to sell newspapers and hype up the good aspects. But look, we also have to be honest with people. There are downsides to this. One of the downsides is cancer. And that was not mentioned in many of the stories that you are doing massive disruption of the cellular machinery inside a cell. I mean, you're reverting a cell back decades into the past, and you're doing massive amounts of disruption to the genetic material in the cell. And so, of course, there could be some mistakes found as well. And that's where cancer comes into the picture. So in other words, yes, it is amazing that you can do this. But B, you have to be very careful to make sure that your enthusiasm overtakes the science. And speaking about cancer, we all know that biopsies are the gold standard to determine whether or not clusters of cells are cancerous. But biopsies are not pleasant. You have to, of course, cut the skin, allow the skin to heal. Sometimes it's painful, takes time. Wouldn't it be better to have the results within a matter of seconds? Seconds? Well, there are two ways of doing this, which are now generating lots of interest. The first way is still experimental, done at the Stevens Institute of Technology in New Jersey, and that is using a millimeter wave scanner to simply scan a potential uh, skin tumor and within seconds, within seconds, giving you a diagnosis. This is amazing. Think about it. Instead of having to wait weeks and having scar tissue and so on and so forth, why not simply push a button? Now, how does this work? Well, it's done on the basis of science. When you go to the airport, there, of course, is an airport scanner. The airport scanner is pretty much harmless. 
hits you with electromagnetic radiation that is non-ionizing, that is, does not cause cancer, it's not energetic enough to cause damage to the cell, and detects whether or not you have, let's say, a gun or explosive when you go on an airplane. Well, that same millimeter wave technology can be used to detect cancer, skin cancer, because it turns out that when these millimeter waves reflect off ordinary cells or they reflect off cancer cells, the reflected image is slightly different. And that's where these devices can detect skin cancer. How effective are they? 97% effective. And how long does it take? A few seconds. You just push a button, it analyzes the potential uh, part of the skin that you want to be analyzed, and will give you a result within a matter of seconds using millimeter wave technology developed at the Stevens Institute of Technology right outside Manhattan in New Jersey. Now that's big news. Another big news, piece of big news that we've talked about in, before on exploration is liquid biopsies. Wouldn't it be great if you simply took a blood test? Simply took a blood test and had 50 different kinds of cancers analyzed? Yes, when you have cancer cells growing in your body, they circulate in your blood. In your blood, there are cancer genes, cancer enzymes, cancer cells circulating in your blood. But in the past, we didn't have the technology to detect these things. Now we do. The FDA has now approved this technology. 50, count them, 50 different kinds of cancers can now be detected in this way. And in the future, perhaps not even a blood test, perhaps a urine test, perhaps a saliva test, because urine and saliva, you will also find remnants of cancer cells floating in those fluids as well. Can you imagine that? A smart toilet. You go to the bathroom and your bathroom diagnoses your bodily fluids to tell you if you have cancerous cells growing in your body. And this could give you an early warning system, perhaps years before a tumor forms. Because when a tumor forms, you already have billions of cancer cells growing in your body. This will detect cancer cells, cancer cells floating in your bodily fluids. Well, as I said before, the FDA now has approved this technology. Watch for it. It's still a little bit expensive right now. It costs about $1,000 per analysis. But with time and more people having this technology done on them, prices are going to go down. And lastly, let me just say a few things about the movies. If you've been going to the movies, you realize that almost all the blockbusters have a new twist. They take place in the multiverse. You know, it used to be that Hollywood blockbusters were set up into outer space. But you know, we've been there. We've been in outer space for the past 50 years. And moviegoers are saying, ho-hum, what, another space movie? Been there, done that. But the multiverse gives you an infinite number of possibilities that Hollywood is just beginning to mine. The Avengers, Spider-Man, Doctor Strange, you name it, almost all the big blockbusters are set in the multiverse. And why is that? Believe it or not, the idea of the multiverse comes from my field, theoretical physics. You see, there's something called the quantum theory, which is the theory of the atom. 
Now, the atoms can do all sorts of amazing things. That's why we have lasers. That's why we have transistors. That's why we have the internet. That's why we have radio, television. The atomic world is quite different from the world that we're familiar with. The world that we're familiar with, objects can only exist in one spot at one given time. You cannot be two places at the same time. I mean, that's nuts. You cannot be two places at the same time. However, electrons do that all the time. That's why we have lasers. That's why we have transistors. If Isaac Newton could come back and look at all the wonders in your living room, he would probably say, that's not possible. You can't have objects being two places at the same time. Well, that's why we have these electronic wonders. But if electrons can do it, why not people? And that's the basis for all these science fiction movies. Now, once I had Professor Steve Weinberg, Nobel laureate, on exploration, and I asked him to explain it. And he did it as follows. Imagine being in your living room listening to a radio station. And of course, you can only listen to one station at a time. There, there are hundreds of stations in your living room, but your radio is tuned to be uh, resonating with only one of them. In other words, you are coherent with only one frequency. That's why you only hear one frequency on your radio. Now, replace the radio waves with electron waves. All of a sudden, you realize that these electron waves represent universes. Therefore, in your living room, you have the electron waves of dinosaurs, the electron waves of pirates, the electron waves of aliens from out of space coexisting in your living room. So does this mean that is Elvis Presley still alive in one of these parallel universes? Well, in some sense, yes. But why can't you listen to Elvis Presley? Why can't you reach out and touch people that have died but are still living in another parallel universe? Why can't you go to Mars simply by going outside the door and walking on the red planet? Why can't you do all these wondrous things that you see in the movies? Well, there's a catch. There's always a catch someplace. And that is that the probability, the probability of these things happening is so small that you would have to wait longer than the lifetime of the universe for it to happen. You see, our atoms vibrate, but they have decohered with the wave function of dinosaurs. We no longer vibrate. We no longer vibrate in unison with these other worlds. Now, of course, there's always a probability that it'll happen, but it's a very small probability. So in other words, the common sense world that you see around you, where things are solid, things can only be one place at any given time, that's only temporary. That if you wait long enough, you might be able to make a transition to these other universes. But how long would you have to wait? Probably longer than the lifetime of the universe. So in other words, you're not going to hear Elvis Presley anytime soon. Though on the atomic scale, it happens all the time. So that's one of the mysteries of the quantum theory. Well, if you want to know more about these things, get a copy of some of my earlier books, like Parallel Worlds, and my latest book, which is a New York Times bestseller, The God Equation talking about the ultimate theory of everything there is. And so once again, is it possible that one day you could wake up on Mars? Well, yeah. But the probability is calculable, and the probabilities are so small 
that I would not get a ticket to go to Mars tomorrow. Could it happen? Yes. Is it likely? No. Well, I'm afraid that's it for the first part of Exploration. And if you want to know more about Exploration, go to my website, mkaku.org, M-K-A-K-U.org. I have 5 million fans on Facebook, and I've written five New York Times bestsellers. My latest one is called The God Equation, The Quest for a Theory of Everything. So find out what this show is all about by going to my website, mkaku.org. So stay tuned now for the second half of Exploration. Welcome back to Exploration with Dr. Michio Okaku. In the second half of Exploration, we're going to talk about the fountain of youth, that is, the quest for immortality. You know, ever since the dawn of history, people have been fascinated by the fact that, well, the gods live forever, so why not us? In fact, one of the earliest tales ever recorded is the tale of Gilgamesh. This tale actually predates some of the Bible. It's about a warrior who was chasing after the fountain of youth. He wanted to find the secret of immortality, and when he finally found it, it was a plant. But just as about he was to eat the plant and become immortal, a snake snatched it away, and that's why humans have a finite lifespan. Sorry about that. But even the Bible makes reference to the question of immortality. Because, of course, why were we banned from the Garden of Eden? Because of the apple. Well, why would an apple do something like that? That was the apple of knowledge. But the knowledge of what? In the Bible, it said that God was fearful that humans would eat the apple and become one of us. In other words, immortal. So the search for immortality is a very old one. In fact, in Chinese legend, the man who unified China was Emperor Qin, and he assembled all his princes one day and said, Go, go and find the fountain of youth. And he said, If you don't find the fountain of youth, then don't come back. Well, apparently they did not find the fountain of youth. They didn't come back. But all the princes of ancient China went on to create Japan and Korea. And so the whole quest for a theory of immortality is a very old one going back all the way to prehistory.
And now I'd like to bring on our special guest for today. We're very delighted to have with us Professor S.J. Olshansky. He's a professor in the School of Public Health at the University of Illinois at Chicago, and he's also a research institute at the Center on Aging at the University of Chicago. Well, if you've been to the drugstore, you've probably been hit with all these advertising saying that you can retard the aging process, even roll back the hands of time, live longer, they say. But what about the truth? The truth about human growth hormone, antioxidants, massive doses of vitamins and minerals and herbs and supplements. What about the hardcore truth and scientific verification of these claims? And also, what about genetics? We seem to be teasing apart many of the genes that influence the aging process. So once again, we're going to bring on our special guest today, Professor Jay Olshansky, and he's the co-author of a book called The Quest for Immortality. So that's the subject of today's discussion, immortality. I understand that today you and other prominent scientists have issued a, a policy statement, a recommendation of sorts that could have serious uh, and beneficial economic benefits. Uh, could you elaborate? Yes. Uh, this is uh, based on an article we published in The Scientist back in March of uh, this year uh, with Rich Miller from the University of Michigan, uh, Dan Perry from the Alliance for Aging Research, and Bob Butler from the International Longevity Center in New York, and we basically uh, suggested that the time has arrived for uh, societies, uh, not just the United States, but really all nations, to begin investing in an effort to slow the biological process of aging in people. Uh, and the logic and the rationale is fairly straightforward. Uh, basically, what we're suggesting is, is that a, even a small uh, deceleration or slowdown in the rate of biological aging uh, of just a few years would actually yield huge economic and health benefits. Um, I mean, think of it this way. The way the NIH is currently set up is essentially to d deal with one disease at a time independent of all others. But if you can find a way to slow down the biological process of aging, you would essentially postpone everything that is negative associated with growing older into later and later ages. It would be... A, even, it would be as if you, you achieved a major discovery for every major fatal and non-fatal disease if you could find a way to slow aging. So we're calling on Congress to begin investing in a concerted effort to slow the biological process of aging in, in people. Yes, in fact, the social benefits could be astronomical, especially as you look at the baby boomers that are hitting 60 and will eventually... Uh, increase medical costs uh, tremendously in this country. Yes. I mean, the prevalence of, uh, of conditions of frailty and disability will rise dramatically in the coming decades with the aging of the baby boom cohort. Uh, so slowing that process even a little bit would actually uh, enable people to be uh, healthier longer, uh, contribute uh, to the economy longer. They would just, uh, just everything positive uh, associated with... Um, with, uh, with aging, there are positive things associated with aging, would uh, be extended. Uh, so it would be, it would be uh, an, an extraordinarily important uh, event for national economies, for public health. Uh, I, really, the time has arrived, I think. And not only has the time arrived, but the science is approaching the level at which I think we're beginning to gain enough understanding that we think we can do this in humans. We know we can do it in other animals. 
um, we think we can do this in humans. Okay, now let's get back to Earth and uh, talk about hokum, snake oil, and real science. Uh, if you visit the drugstore, you realize that there are whole shelves full of herbs and remedies and vitamins, making all sorts of promises about retarding the aging process, reversing the years. So let's now talk about the science, that is, what is known experimentally. Let's start with the Internet, where we have lots of advertisements for human growth hormone. Now, in some sense, are the people of America being used as guinea pigs for this gigantic experiment on human growth hormone, or what are your thoughts? Well, uh, actually, uh, people are using themselves as guinea pigs. It's absolutely remarkable that, uh, you know, you can go on the Internet and find every conceivable nutritional supplement and hormone, including growth hormone, uh, with people with no expertise in the field claiming that it can slow, stop, or reverse the biological process of aging. And people believe this. They spend enormous sums of money. They order this stuff over the Internet. They inject themselves with it or take these pills. And there isn't a shred of, shred of evidence that it'll make you live any longer. There actually is some evidence, some suggestive evidence, that some of these substances, including growth hormone, have the potential to actually shorten your life. Uh, so it's remarkable that people are conducting a biological experiment on themselves. It doesn't mean that there isn't value necessarily to some nutritional supplements, particularly for people who are deficient in certain vitamins and minerals. Uh, there's no question that there is a benefit for those individuals. But if your diet is so bad that you're deficient in some major uh, vitamin or mineral or, uh, you know, or, or something, um, that uh, these, uh, these vitamin supplements aren't going to uh, make up the difference. It simply isn't going to work. And there's no evidence that it actually extends life. And what about the side effects of human growth hormones? Some people think maybe cancer or other kinds of diseases associated with accelerating metabolism. Uh, it's like a sports car. If you were to accelerate a sports car, you'd throw off a few gears here, here and there. And that, of course, means cancer because cancer, in some sense, is genetic errors. Uh, but what are your thoughts about side effects of human growth hormone? Well, um, first of all, uh, it has been demonstrated that there are some benefits, believe it or not, uh, associated with growth hormone including increased muscle mass and uh, reduction in the rate of bone loss and improved skin elasticity. So you can't deny the fact that there have been benefits associated with it. But accompanying those benefits have been uh, risks, including carpal tunnel syndrome, uh, increased risk of diabetes. There is suggestive evidence that it might increase the risk of cancer. The fact is, is that it hasn't been properly studied yet using clinical trials in humans. Uh, and so before those clinical trials are in, before we know what the results are, it's really premature to be using these kinds of substances. And again, once again, with the case of growth hormone, there isn't any evidence that it extends life. Okay, now moving on, when you go to the drugstore, you see these advertisements for megavitamins. Uh, some claim that it retards uh, the oxidation process. Other people cite certain studies which show that if you ingest certain diets, diets are rich in vitamins, it seems to be good for you. But what about the pure, the pure form of vitamins that you buy in the drugstore? Well, um, well, once again, um, you know, the, the nutritional supplement uh, industry is really working hard to convince us that aging is somehow caused by... Uh, uh, either the loss of some hormone or the lack of nutritional supplements of one kind or another, and they're perfectly willing to sell you uh, everything that that, uh, that that they can to try to convince you that you can somehow influence this process. 
Uh, and it's based in part on, a, uh, on, on, on science, uh, where it's suggested that, uh, that aging is influenced by oxidation, uh, and this oxidation process can be uh, uh, slowed down in theory with the ingestion of uh, certain nutritional supplements that have antioxidative effects. Um, but there isn't any empirical evidence that demonstrates that these substances actually extend duration of life. Uh, so once again, it's the same scenario uh, where people are selling something with exaggerated claims, uh, with a profit motive uh, in mind, and uh, people are buying it up like crazy. And what about herbs? Some people say that maybe pure vitamins that are refined by the chemical companies may not uh, simulate uh, vitamins in the natural forms. So what about taking herbal medicines? What is known or not known about herbs? Now, honestly, I don't, I don't know that much about her, uh, herbs and herbal medicines um, to comment uh, on that. But what I can tell you is, is, that, is that there's plenty of evidence that eating more fruits and vegetables and uh, can certainly in, uh, l lower your risk of a wide variety of diseases and disorders. Uh, and, of course, those in the supplement is industry are suggesting that contained within those fruits and vegetables are certain substances that they can concentrate in a pill and give to you in a larger form, you know, under the assumption that more is better. Well, there is where the evidence is lacking. There, the evidence is there that eating more fruits and vegetables is good for you, the evidence is lacking that the nutritional supplements containing the vitamins that they think are causing the beneficial effect, uh, the evidence there is lacking that that will have any significant effect. Okay, now moving on, let's talk about something that actually does work. Uh, I think all scientists would say unanimously that there is one and only one proven way in the animal kingdom anyway of actually increasing the lifespan of animals. We don't know whether it works for humans yet. But let's talk about caloric restriction. First of all, what is it, and uh, what tests have been done? Well, this you're right. This is the uh, one intervention that's been demonstrated repeatedly to extend duration of life on a wide variety of species. Uh, it's basically reducing your caloric intake. It can, you know, vary. The percentage can vary from anywhere from 10 to 30 percent below maintenance levels. Um, so it would depend on what your current uh, height and weight is, but you know, if your normal caloric intake is uh, 2,000 calories to maintain your weight, you might be reducing it down to 15, for example, 1,500 uh, calories. Um, and the and no one exactly knows uh, why it works or how it works, the underlying mechanism. But there is consistent research suggesting that it extends duration of life. Now, the question is, how does it do so? Does it extend duration of life? by slowing the biological process of aging. Some people believe that to be the case. Others suggest that it actually extends duration of life by reducing the risk of a wide variety of diseases and disorders, which is not the same as slowing the biological process of aging. Um, remember, if you reduce the risk of uh, heart disease, cancer, and stroke, however you do that through exercise or diet, the aging process marches on. It's uninfluenced by that. Um, but if indeed you're slowing down the biological process of aging, then everything negative associated with it is dragged to later ages. It's postponed to later ages. And that would actually be a wonderful thing if caloric restriction was the mechanism that actually uh, worked. Now, don't expect, by the way, that people are going to be living longer by reducing, dramatically reducing their caloric intake. What the scientists are looking for is the underlying mechanism 
to find a way to mimic that process without actually reducing your caloric intake. It should be obvious, by the way, that in the United States and elsewhere, we're doing the exact opposite. We are increasing our caloric intake. We are growing more obese at a more rapid pace um, than we ever have in the past. So this research is particularly important and is interesting for a wide variety of reasons. Okay, now caloric restriction works on yeast cells, uh, spiders, insects, uh, mice, and now for the first time we're getting the first preliminary evidence uh, from primate studies done in Bethesda, Maryland. So can you tell us a little bit about some of those experiments, because primates, of course, are closer to us, and uh, perhaps it may work on organisms as complex as us. But what are your thoughts? Well, my guess is it probably will. I mean, the work of Richard Weinrich from uh, Wisconsin and other researchers uh, at NIH and Bethesda uh, have, I think, demonstrated quite convincingly that reducing caloric intake can lower the risk of disease. Probably it will extend duration of life. We have to wait for these animals to live long enough to determine whether or not uh, that's going to be one of the consequences. But there's there are a couple of problems here. In the, some of the earlier studies, you need to remember that the control animals that were used in the caloric restriction studies were fed ad libitum, uh, meaning they had as much food as they wanted, which is sort of like us. Uh, and so whenever you reduce your caloric intake uh, relative to eating as much as you want, what you are demonstrating is more the uh, detrimental effect of a gluttonous lifestyle rather than the longevity-enhancing effect of caloric restriction. So you have to be careful on, on how you interpret that. Now, in more recent studies, the control animals are not fed ad libitum. They are, are fed really more of a maintenance diet. Um, and you're not seeing quite the large uh, differences in uh, duration of life in these two populations when you do it that way. Nevertheless, you do see reductions in the risk of uh, a wide variety of diseases and disorders, and we would all be better off if we reduced our caloric intake. Whether it would work in humans at the level that we see in the, these other species, I think is highly questionable. And there's a real concern when, uh, for example, you extend the duration of life of a fruit fly or, uh, or a roundworm nematode by three, four, or five-fold. Real, it's real tempting for researchers to then multiply the human life expectancy by three, four, or five and suggest that the same effect if it occurred in humans would make us live hundreds and hundreds of years. Uh, my guess is we wouldn't see anywhere near that kind of uh, magnitude, uh, increase in magnitude and duration of life in humans. But if we could, you know, live healthier longer for just, you know, an extra five or ten years, that would be huge. Okay, now I understand that the animals that have been studied uh, seem to be a little bit lethargic uh, because they have such a restricted diet. They have less cancerous tumors, uh, less incidences of diseases associated with the aging process, but they also seem to lack an interest in the sex drive. That is, all the things that uh, make uh, life worth living, joie de vivre, uh, these animals seem to be pretty lethargic. Uh, is that true? Yeah, so I understand that there is a appears to be a price uh, to pay. There appears to be uh, lower fecundity, um, less interest in uh, sex, and I think a difficult problem with controlling body temperature. Uh, these animals uh, are cold, in fact, uh, feel cold. And in fact, in the case of humans who are conducting this experiment on themselves, they're essentially reporting the same thing. Um, so there is a price, at least for now, to be paid by adopting this calorically restricted uh, diet, which is why, as I suggested earlier, 
reducing your caloric intake to these kinds of levels probably isn't the way it's going to work in humans. The way it's probably going to work in humans is that scientists will try to find some sort of mimetic, something that will uh, fool the body into believing that it's calorically restricted to achieve the same effect uh, without actually reducing, significantly reducing your caloric intake like that. And that's probably uh, the way it will work. And, and that's it's extremely valuable and interesting uh, research that needs to be aggressively uh, pursued because there's such great potential there. Okay, now let's leave the animal kingdom and talk, and talk strictly about humans. Uh, in your book, you mentioned the fact that the uh, life expectancy for Americans at the beginning of the 20th century was not very long at all, less than 50 years of age. And yet there's been an increase uh, into the 70s uh, since then, some people think it's sanitation. Other people think it's antibiotics and vaccines. But what are your thoughts about looking at the long-term, the long-term life expectancy of humans going back to ancient days, uh, through the Middle Ages, uh, to the turn of the century, to present-day times? Well, going back to, to ancient times, uh, there's evidence to suggest that life expectancy, for example, during the time of the uh, ancient Egyptians, was probably somewhere in the 20s. Nobody knows exactly where it was, but it's likely to have been in the 20s. Uh, we've, we achieved a very small incremental increase over uh, the millennia to the beginning of the 20th, uh, uh, the beginning of the, the 19th and 20th centuries, when life expectancy rose up to about uh, between 45 and 50, uh, in the United States anyway. Um, and then you saw this quantum leap in life expectancy during the 20th century from uh, you know, 50 to close to 80. And that was largely attributable to dramatic reductions in early age mortality, infant, child, and maternal mortality, principally as a result of uh, sanitation, uh, public health, refrigeration, uh, foods, and so forth. It's, you know, the introduction of antibiotics uh, occurred after most of the declines in the death rate uh, occurred at younger ages and contributed relatively uh, a small amount to the rise in life expectancy in the 20th century. Now, in the latter part of the 20th century, there have been notable reductions in death rates at middle and older ages, even from heart disease, from some forms of cancer. Um, and so you, you see you know, two forces contributing during the 20th century. The early age mortality declines at the beginning, and the later age mortality declines at the end, uh, which explains, by the way, why the more recent increases in life expectancy have been smaller than the ones that occurred at the beginning of the 20th, 20th century. When you save children from dying, you add very rapidly to life expectancy. When you save middle-aged and older people from dying uh, from uh, fatal diseases, chronic fatal diseases, you add rel a relatively smaller amount. Now, it turns out that Japanese women have some of the longest life expectancies on the planet Earth. Uh, it's almost approaching 90. So we're talking about 50% uh, of Japanese women uh, essentially getting into their late 80s and into their 90s. Some people say it's diet, a fish diet that's low in fat. But uh, what are your thoughts about the demographics of different societies? Well, first of all, for, the, for Japanese women, it's just above 85 might it be approaching 86. And, mm -hmm. and you have to realize that, that um, there's a huge difference between 85 and 90. It's not the same as between 50 and 55. Uh, and the reason is fairly straight, 
straightforward. Um, you know, to raise life expectancy up when you're at these very high levels is extremely difficult because you're, you know, you're pushing up against uh, the basic biological process of aging itself. There's no question that subgroups of the population, such as those in Okinawa, Japan, for example, have, have much higher life expectancies. The actual force involved is, is not yet understood. Um, it's not like we can, here in the U.S., adopt the lifestyle of the Japanese. I know some people have suggested this, including some friends of mine um, who study the, the Okinawa diet, uh, suggested that you can somehow get Americans to live as long as the Okinawans by, have, by adopting this particular lifestyle. And there's no evidence to suggest that that would be the case, unless, of course, we were all Japanese here in the United States, and that isn't the case. Um, you know, there are genetic factors that are influencing uh, uh, the risk of death and, and, uh, and duration of life, and those are things that we simply cannot control, um, uh, at least not yet, anyway. Uh, but there's no question that subgroups of the population do experience greater longevity than other subgroups, and that is a fascinating area to study, by the way, because it would appear as though there are genes that exist within the human genome that influence duration of life and they may be more highly concentrated in some subgroups relative to others. Okay, now let's talk about genes because that's, of course, where most of the breakthroughs are being made in the last few years. Again, there's no fountain of youth. Uh, no, in, no one in the genetics area is claiming to have solved the aging process, but there's been lots of very interesting studies. Uh, first of all, there's something called progeria, a genetic disease that's been intensely studied in which children, children die of old age. Uh, they look like plucked chickens, and they die of heart attacks as teenagers. Uh, could you elaborate on that very strange disease? Well, it appears on this progeria appears on the surface anyway to be a phenomenon of accelerated aging, uh, but there's evidence to suggest it is not. There are lots of things that don't occur uh, in these uh, children that occur in the aging phenotype of of uh, individuals who actually do make it out to, to older ages. So, I would be cautious about. Uh, about thinking of progeria as accelerated uh, aging. Um, it is certainly interesting to study these individuals, and you have to realize that it's always easy to do something to yourself that will accelerate aging. I mean, you know, we've, and we do it all the time, quite frankly. And one of my, uh, the arguments that I've made for many years is, is that the only control we have over the duration of our life is to shorten it. And we exercise that control all the time when we adopt lifestyles that are, uh, you know, where we expose ourselves to the sun or we don't exercise or we smoke cigarettes or, or use drugs. These are the kinds of things that can uh, make us die at much younger ages than would otherwise be the case. Clearly, with these children with progeria, there are genetic forces that are influencing uh, this phenomenon, but it is not or appears not to be a case of accelerated aging. Now let me ask you a key question. Is there an age gene or a collection of genes which control the aging process? Well, this, to me, is one of the most fascinating lines of research in the field of aging today. Clearly, we have people who live past 100, they're called centenarians, and people who live past 110, they're called supercentenarians. There are many fewer of the latter. Um, but they do exist, and these individuals somehow can make it out for 100 years or 110 years without heart disease or cancer, while the rest of us don't live that long. And we, and 
three-quarters of the population will die from heart disease, cancer, or stroke. So clearly, these individuals possess genes that enable them to combat the things that kill the rest of us at younger ages. And so the research that's ongoing now by a number of scientists that study these older individuals, I think, holds great potential for understanding the basic genetics of duration of life. It's not... It's important to remember that the genes that these individuals have are not, I hesitate to call them longevity genes, only because they can't exist for the purpose of making us live longer. Um, but these individuals may just be fortunate to possess these genes that somehow protect them from the things that kill the rest of us at younger ages. And that concludes our interview with Jay Olshansky. He's one of the nation's leading experts on the aging process and the genetic basis of our genes. And he's the author of a book called The Quest for Immortality. However, I should point out to you that it's not going to be tomorrow. It's not going to be the day after tomorrow. But it may take years for us to understand the aging process genetically as well as on the level of lifestyle as well as the ability to grow organs of the body to replace disease organs as they wear out. So a combination of therapies may eventually be involved. A, to reprogram our genes. B, to change our lifestyle. And C, eventually to replace diseased and aging organs as they wear out. So don't think this is going to happen anytime soon. However, there's nothing in the laws of biology to prevent us from extending the lifespan. Well, I'm afraid that's it for exploration. Once again, this is Dr. Michio Kaku. Go to my website, mkaku.org, m-k-a-k-u.org, to find out what all the excitement is about. So once again, this is Dr. Michio Kaku for Exploration. <music>